KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint. Shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm Denise Nakano, and this week on Flashpoint, deadly overdoses are up, intensifying the drug crisis in several Philadelphia neighborhoods. We are paying special attention to populations of color. And the spike in deaths based on a city report appear to be only made worse by the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Communities of color have typically had a harder time. Then, the journey of one woman who spent years in recovery and is now a community advocate. I spent nine months in a recovery house and having that support was so instrumental. And this week's changemaker is working with the city's youth to become the next neighborhood peacemakers trained in harm reduction. Gardening is a spiritually refreshing healing activity. It's a half hour you need to hear that could possibly save a life. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Denise Nakano. And to talk about the spike in overdose deaths, especially in black and brown communities, we have Clayton Ruley, the director of community outreach and volunteer services with Prevention Point, and Shannon Ash, who works on the front line of harm reduction throughout the city and is working to start her own nonprofit to help people in crisis. Clayton and Shannon, thanks so much for being here with us to talk about the ongoing drug epidemic in the city. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much me. for having us. Now, this drug epidemic has made a critical shift during the pandemic. The latest information collected by the city in 2020 shows how Philadelphia's overdose crisis is changing, affecting more people of color. What have you seen on the front lines of your work, Shannon? Yes, we definitely have seen more people of color being part of the populations that we're serving, but also had to change some of the demographics. Fentanyl has been occurring in other drugs more frequently. And we believe that the increase in deaths among people in the brown and black communities are closely tied to fentanyl being in other drugs, uh, notably crack and also um, K2 synthetic marijuana. So people that are using those are opiate naive. So they don't use opiates. Typically, they're not overdose prevention educated. They're not prepared and ready for that. So that's not something that's typically or historically been present in their drug supply. And Clayton, what have you noticed about the changing demographic in the drug epidemic? And I say drugs as opposed to opioids, because it's not just opioids we're talking about, right? No, the fentanyl that has been in drug supply, I would say for the last four years, has definitely started to stretch past what most people would consider uh, opiate uh, use. And as Shannon mentioned, you know, is in all the drugs. And so I think it's really imperative that folks know that, you know, to keep people alive, it's not just a segmenting of people who use this drug compared to you people who use this drug, just really going to be being aware in all different neighborhoods with all different racial backgrounds. If we know someone who's using drugs, uh, they could be potentially uh, in line to, you know, potentially overdose and die from an overdose. So, Let's get people more access to Narcan. Let's get people more access to education about drugs. Let's be able to identify what an overdose looks like and be able to respond and get people involved if we're not uh, willing to respond ourselves. Really important. And we've seen this uptick in fentanyl make this crisis even more dangerous and, and more deadly. I definitely think there was a us versus them mentality with a lot of people in communities uh, including communities of color, but certainly, you know, communities that are ravaged by poverty and, and homelessness and 
uh, all sorts of things that might separate a lot of folks from each other. I think it's, you know, once again, uh, imperative that folks know that we're all interconnected. And although we might think that our son or our grandson or our niece only smokes weed or only pops pills or only does, you know, this type of drug that's harmless, um, you know, if they're doing those drugs, there have been cases where fentanyl has been found. And, you know, when fentanyl is around, it's 25 to 100% stronger than an opioid pain pill or a bag of heroin. And it can knock you down and it can be a fatal knockdown. Building awareness, which I know, you know, Shannon does uh, in her outreach. And I know Prevention Point has done ever increasingly uh, in communities of, of color. Um, and actually having open ears as a person receiving that outreach is, is really important right now. Yeah, these underserved communities have really been ravaged in the past year. Overdose deaths among white residents dropped by 7% uh, in 2020, while deaths among Black Philadelphians jumped by 30%. Deaths among those in the Latinx community went up by nearly 6%. So how has the pandemic fueled the increase in overdose deaths? I think one of the biggest things is people lost jobs. And when people don't have something productive to focus on, it can be really um, detrimental for them. And there is reduced access to services. So the help that was there in place was then people weren't able to get to. And more people, of course, are isolated during this time. Right. And we know that isolation is a factor in drug use. So support and feeling connected to others is a huge protective factor in terms of not using substances. Now, on the other side of this, how has the pandemic caused obstacles in both of your work in harm reduction and also outreach? Yes. Um, so I, I would say, first off, it's only magnified not only for the participants we work with, but for us as providers of services, you know, what has already been around, which is, I think, a disconnect between what we know works and what people are willing to oftentimes uh, give allowance to happening. Uh, that gap, you know, certainly didn't get smaller during the pandemic. So in some cases, you know, certain things stayed the same. And in other cases, it got absolutely worse. The connection between people receiving services outside of Prevention Point, which stayed open for the entirety of the pandemic, was night and day. Um, places that folks used to go to for daytime engagement and for medical services and for other social services, every factor that you can think of was affected by COVID. It was a challenge to be out there, but knowing that we were in positions to help folks who oftentimes already didn't have and now had even less was something that we you know, wanted to do. Uh, and we're certainly proud to have done it and been helpful. And it looks like we are, you know, at the end of a, a very long and dark tunnel. We saw how we used harm reduction as far as mask wearing and washing our hands and social distancing. Why can't we understand that when it comes to people who use drugs, um, fentanyl test strips, giving people access to Narcan, giving people access to clean materials so they can do whatever they're already doing safely as possible so they don't contract disease and possibly die is something that we need to reach out and start doing more often as well. 
Yeah, the work really has been critical in administering naloxone and then also giving out those fentanyl test strips. So just if I could elaborate on the test strips for a minute, fentanyl testing strips are so amazing because you can test any substance for the present fentanyl. So it can be anything, weed, pills, powder, liquid, doesn't matter. You can test it and it will let you know within 30 seconds to a minute if it's positive for fentanyl. They're just such a crucial tool in overdose prevention and something that I think we can really use on a wider scale to have people be more educated about the decisions they're making. Now, there's been a widespread stigma regarding substance use disorder. It's always been there. How have racial disparities played a role in people getting the help they need or not getting that help? Well, we certainly know that people trying to access treatment in communities of color have typically had a harder time. I think there is a question when it comes to people of color from outsiders around whether their interest in getting into treatment and staying in the treatment is legitimate. I think the similar problems that we have when it comes to many institutions that we deal with are oftentimes still in our drug treatment uh, system and our, you know, social services and medical services. You got a lot of like, you know, bias that goes on from providers of service. And if there's any question about, you know, who's doing, you know, legitimate, who really wants it, who's not giving you a hard time, um, it has in many cases gone to, okay, the black or brown person is the one that I'm going to not give the benefit of the doubt to. We know that that happens more often than it should. And I think just like we need to improve uh, all the other systems, the legal system, education. We also need to, you know, work on social services, and that includes mental health, that includes drug and alcohol, just overall, you know, wellness for folks. Shannon, do you notice anything about the racial disparities playing a role when you're out in the field on the front line? I know that when I work with people of color, there is a barrier between me and them in terms of, am I being genuine? Am I being authentic? Why does someone that looks like her want to come help us? I had somebody say to me one day, someone that looks and acts like you has never actually have a conversation with me before. That made me sad. People that are in black and brown populations just have less resources available to them. It is something that we very frequently see. A really powerful statement that he made to you. And you want to get across a message that you're here to help. I mean, you even want to start a 501c3. Yeah, no, definitely. It's not that I don't see color, but I don't, race is not part of the, am I going to help you thinking process? Like it doesn't play into our decision-making of whether or not we're going to serve people. We are paying special attention to populations of color because of the epidemic since working in this field, I've always worked with very diverse populations. I think the issues is not just around racial uh, dynamics, but also poverty dynamics, because you can get the same conversation with people when people see you and, you know, folks are, you know, maybe a little tattered and, you know, they may not have been able to wash up. Um, and, and they'll say, like, they're not used to, like, someone who is in a you know more fortunate situation, you know, reaching down or reaching out to them and trying to help them out. So we also have to you know think about the issues of poverty surrounding 
um, these circumstances and also think about the issue sometimes, particularly when you're talking about our brown communities, uh, the language barrier sometimes to accessing services and whether those services are being promoted, particularly in, in Spanish. Uh, but also in other languages, depending on what neighborhood you have and getting either organizations like Prevention Point uh, able to do more outreach in those communities, which we certainly uh, work with uh, many partners, um, but also empowering communities and agencies in those communities that already have those connections to try to take a little piece of harm reduction with them into their service provisions. The message oftentimes comes at a more genuine level with a lot of folks when it's coming from people that speak their language and look like them. You know, some groups of people not only have the racial aspect, but they have the poverty aspect and the language aspect. And, you know, those are all major factors on why, you know, I think a lot of folks uh, in the black and brown communities um, have had the rates that they've had recently. So I think it's important that we, you know, try to eliminate the factors that we know we can take care of here on the ground right now, and then long-term work towards the factors like poverty, go take a lot more time to, to try to, you know, amend. We know so much work needs to be done and you're both doing it. Clayton Rooley with Prevention Point and Shannon Ash working on the front line of the epidemic. Thank you for your work and thank you for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Now, back to Flashpoint from KYW News Radio. Our newsmaker of the week is Brooke Feldman, a community organizer and advocate of addiction recovery and health. As we hear from Shara Day Howard, she knows the struggle firsthand, having spent years in recovery. Welcome, Brooke. Let's get right to it. Opioid use. It's a crisis, a nationwide epidemic, something that has touched almost everyone or at least someone we know. But this isn't new. It's just in the news more often. And many argue the opioid epidemic didn't just happen overnight. And you say your lived experience in recovery and as an advocate is proof. Yeah, well, so one, I have experience as a person who struggled with a substance use disorder. And I also have experience as somebody who grew up with a parent who wasn't in their life due to her own struggles with a substance use disorder. Order. And my mom was down uh, living in Kensington using drugs long before it became like the quote unquote opioid epidemic. And you lost your mother early in life to this disease. Uh, my mom died from an overdose when I was 12 years old, like long before this was like this sort of national crisis that we see. And so like my personal experience of having, you know, lost my mother to addiction and then having gone on to struggle myself certainly gives me the passion I have for the work I do. And also the understanding that this didn't just start with like Oxycontin or Percocet and that what we call the opioid epidemic has really been a long standing, you know, addiction epidemic, you know, how I enter in to, you know, the current circumstances, understanding that there's a lot that build up to where we are and that there's also solutions to get us out of where we are if there were the political and public will to, to use them. So let's talk more about your upbringing. Now you've heard the term generational curse. Would you say in this situation that you're breaking them? Yeah, so there's a term called intergenerational transmission of addiction, which is a really long uh, term and hard to say three times fast. But it's the idea that we know that trauma is passed down through generations and that uh, if you grow up in a household where you have a parent who struggle with addiction, then your chances of winding up in the same circumstances are increased. Uh, and so there is something to be said about, you know, having had the opportunity to kind of break that cycle 
cycle. And there's another cycle that you recognize and want to break. The disparities you've seen in how children and people of color are treated within the system. One thing I talk about often is the benefits and advantages that I had that helped me break that cycle, whereas so many other people don't have those. Uh, and so like one quick example is my experience in Philly's juvenile justice system. I was the only white girl on the entire floor at the, it was then the Youth Study Center. And I remember like thinking like, just like I stood out like a sore thumb and I was there for Grand Theft Auto, which was a pretty serious crime and my black and brown peers were there for things like truancy or getting into a fight in school and definitely not like a felony like I was and they were seen as bad kids who needed to be punished by the system and sent to boot camp where I was seen as a troubled kid who needed help and was sent to another like residential treatment facility as I always say that's an example of the many advantages and benefits that I had that I should I shouldn't have had you know compared to others and that put me on a different course being seen as a troubled kid who needed help versus a bad kid who needed punishment Similarly, we've seen how drastically different this epidemic has been treated versus others in the past. And one of the biggest problems with the narrative surrounding the opioid epidemic, one, it's been like the white face has been held up, right? It's usually a young white man held up as the face of this like opioid crisis. And, you know, it's very different than what we saw in the 80s and 90s with the crack epidemic, where it was like, we need to lock these people up. They're a dangerous society. We need to punish them. And instead, it's like we need a more compassionate approach. Uh, we always needed a more compassionate approach approach, but I think it's important that we talk about why the opioid epidemic is seen as different or opioid users are like a more deserving class than other drug users. You're described as a fierce advocate by your peers and you say that's because this is also your fight, your battle. Yeah, well, the struggle was real. Uh, and so I took the fast elevator down through my substance use where it wasn't like slow and progressive. It was pretty quick. So, And I was in my first institution at the age of 13 and my teenage years were like spent in and out of them. And, and sadly, many of these places were actually more harmful than helpful. So it's been great to see like more accountability put on a youth serving system in Philadelphia because it's desperately needed. So I know like the Bunsman position was just created for young people to be able to call. And I'm like, man, I would have called that number, you know, on the regular because of the things I saw. And so honestly, my experience as an adolescent who struggled with addiction was very much at the places I was sent for help ended up actually causing more harm. And the juvenile justice system, even with all my benefits and advantages and privileges in it, just only added trauma and not, you know, not help. But finally at the age of 24, you know, after really struggling, walking away from a basketball scholarship, uh, which was, you know, always, there was Brooke who played basketball and then there was Brooke who used drugs and the two did not like line up well. And so I had the same sort of downward spiral that I think we all know well. And for me, I just didn't want to live that way any longer. And I reached a point where it was either suicide, like just end my life, or I need to like get help and, and get off of this track. You know, I very much didn't want to follow in my mother's footsteps. I didn't want to die at a young age. Like there was still a part of me that like very much wanted to live. And I think that that's true for most people. Uh, you know, one, once you live with a substance use disorder is very difficult. It's not like what Nancy Reagan said, just say no, you know what I mean? And that deep down like I think most people very much do not want to be suffering. Can you pinpoint that moment, that turning point for you? You know, a key thing is that when I sought help, it was available when I sought it. And then I ended up connected to the kind of help I needed. Part of that included, again, privileges and advantages. I showed up at the steps of a recovery house in Kensington and I was like, I need help. And they said, we don't have any beds for self-referrals. And the director said, you know what? I see something in you. Let me call in a favor. I got into the bed, but had I looked different or 
talk different? Would that director still have called in a favor? Like, I don't know. And why should it even take having a favor called in? Because my life was saved by, you know, sort of a favor where, you know, what about the next person? You say your recovery hinged on safe spaces and the feeling of security in the process. And a lot of that was provided by recovery homes, which are often very controversial. Yeah, I mean, it's really important, like just safety, shelter, food, just like what we all need in order to survive as human beings. And so if somebody doesn't have safe and stable housing, this idea of being able to find wellness in their life and find recovery, whatever that means for the person, is really difficult, like without having a home. So it's like a very basic thing that people need. And so recovery houses have been and currently still are sort of like a default layer of care in our system. So people can focus on what it is that they need to do to find recovery. I hated living with 16 women at the time. I was like, get me out of here. But when I look back, I spent nine months in a recovery house in the beginning of my journey and having that support was so instrumental. Additionally, you say that recovery homes are key to healing, but so are safe places and that can come in many forms, some more controversial than others. Currently, I'm focused on getting syringe service programs legalized in Pennsylvania. We are in the minority of states where syringe service programs are considered illegal. We know that they reduce the risk of overdose death by giving out naloxone and training people on how to prevent overdose death. We know that they make people more likely to enter into treatment if they engage that someone who comes into a syringe service program is five times more likely to enter into treatment than someone who did not. So it's an access point. And you say your recovery in work is effective because it stems from access, experience, but also compassion. What's your message to those listening now? I think just giving people hope, you know, we're so beaten down that we don't have hope that things are gonna get better. Beyond anything else, it's really just about love, compassion, empathy. But it's like about loving people right where they're at with no expectations. And people can feel that if they see other people love and care about them, then sometimes that's enough for someone to love and care about themselves again, just enough to make positive changes in their life. Indeed, a little compassion goes a long way. Thank you so much for coming, Brooke. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Denise Nakano. This week's Changemaker is more Ali L., a neighborhood organizer with Urban Creators, one of several local groups working with the city to prevent overdoses in communities of color. He's in the middle of a recruitment campaign to hire youth as Why Not Peacemakers to train in harm reduction so they can go out in the community and become recovery advocates. Here's KYW's Antoinette Lee. So I stopped by the Urban Creators headquarters on an 80-degree weather day. You know, one of those days where it's so hot your clothes are sticking to you. Now, this was my first time visiting the place near 11th and Dolphin Streets in North Philly. So when I got inside the gate, I was very surprised and happy to find this very green and breezy oasis. There was a garden, a greenhouse. They were giving away food like they do every Wednesday. There was a DJ. Kids were running around playing and having a good time. It was really like an urban garden in the city. More Ali L is an organ organizer with urban creators he says that's kind of the point we know that there's a lot of uh, dangerous type of activity 
around us, but we fashion this as a safe space, as a healing space, as a space where you can network and build with like-minded people to, you know, make the world a better place. For years, one of the main initiatives for urban creators has been fighting food insecurities and food deserts with what they grow from the garden. But over the pandemic, Elle says something has changed. The Isaac Code being identified as areas in the city that has had the highest, some of the highest instances of overdose deaths. That's something that the African-American community doesn't really think about that or is aware of that. We see it as a quote unquote foreign problem. You know, that's what they're dealing with up in Kensington. However, if you look at the statistics, those of us that are paying attention, we know that it's happening here. We're not talking about it and it's not being publicized. So now this group is planning to expand their work to tackling addiction, illnesses and harm reduction more head on since they already have boots on the ground in the neighborhood. We don't directly deal with people who are experiencing drug addiction themselves in terms of services for their addiction or support for that. But they come to us for the other stuff, you know, uh, and that. Is harm reduction in essence. Elle says urban creators plan to leverage their position as a community resource hub with a new initiative called Peacemakers. These are paid part-time positions for young people to learn about the issues surrounding addiction and how to organize and do outreach around it. There's something that's causing that and that's causing other problems. So if we can help make sure that you got food or a place to take a break from the concrete jungle or meet some good people, hear some good music, Get your hands. Uh, gardening is a spiritually uh, refreshing healing activity. So all those things is harm reduction. L says he especially hopes young people from the neighborhood will consider the opportunity as a chance to help their community while earning some money. You can find out more about Urban Creators and their Peacemaker Initiative at urbancreators.org or stop by 11th and Dolphin Streets on a Wednesday. That'll do it for this week's edition of Flashpoint. I'll leave you with this anonymous quote. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you it's going to be worth it. For Shara Day Howard, Antoinette Lee, and our producer Ariane Fulcher, I'm Denise Nakano. It's great having you with us. And remember, life's an adventure. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com/flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.